0: So it's just an enormous pleasure to be able to introduce Michelle Ballens to speak here at the Berkman Luncheon Series. Uh, We first met, we now realize, about 10 years ago in Budapest at at a uh, a reactivism uh, uh, conference, bringing all sorts of people trying to think about the way in which the world is changing. Michelle is probably the uh, uh, single most active, uh, 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 broad thinker about questions of peer production, commons, how they can fundamentally reshape uh, economy. Um, uh, He is the founder uh, and director of the P2P foundation that just got an award from Ars Electronica for uh, online communities. He is now spending the semester at the Haven Center at Wisconsin, which those of you who don't know is one of the major homes for um, utopian thinking. Uh, Real utopian thinking, to take Eric Olin Wright's uh, uh, framing uh, of how life can be genuinely different in a way that is both radical and real. Um, uh, He also practices uh, uh, what he uh, speaks in the sense that he really has created an intellectual existence, an activist existence around the world, not based in traditional organizations like the traditional academia, not based in traditional nonprofits, but really in some sense existing in a a global network of people who care and think about the commons and care and think about cooperation. Um, And uh, he's here today to talk about uh, how we think about what we're seeing in practice, in reality, uh, on the ground as a fundamental potential alternative to uh, capitalism as we've known it in the late 20th, early 21st century, um, it's a real pleasure to have you here, Michel. I'm Thank thrilled you, you're here. Yeah. And of course,
1: um, it's—I don't say that to you know be good in a good standing with you, but of course, Yochai was the first one to talk about peer production, to my knowledge. So. I owe you a great debt uh, for the wealth of networks and, and, and those types of things. So I feel in a way I've, you know, I've been continuing your work in a certain direction. Um, yeah, I, I will start with a, a kind of broad framing. And when I started my work, uh, um, which is more or less 2004, so I, I used to be a business person. I did. I did a great many sins in my life. Um, I was working for British Petroleum. Um, yes, <laughs> you know, buy, buying up solar companies and closing them and stuff like that. Um, I'm. I also had a job as a librarian, uh, closing down libraries and replacing them with electronic systems. So I have a lot to to atone for. Exactly. Um, and so I had a kind of a, a moral crisis uh, at the end of the 90s. You know, I was thinking, am I on the side of the people who solve the issue or on the side of the people who make it worse? And I was clearly making it worse rather than making it better. So I, I took a two-year sabbatical to really to find out you know, what I could do today uh, to change society. And I decided to spend two years more or less reading about phase transitions. Um, So I planned to do the end of the Roman Empire, the emerging of capitalism. To be honest, I got stuck at the end of the Roman Empire because there's so much stuff about it that uh, that was basically what I had time for. Uh, But I I did have, you know, from that a kind of uh, idea of what I wanted to do. And uh, one system that I used at the very beginning was uh, an anthropologist called Alan Page Fisk. If you ever heard of him, uh, it's a very boring book, 1,000 pages or maybe 800. Uh, It's called Structures of Social Life. And he says, basically, at all times and in all regions of the world, there have been four main ways to allocate resources. Uh, In other words, it's a relational grammar. Um, So I'll I'll briefly uh, tell you what they are. So, because this is important for my work. So the first one he calls equality matching. Equality matching is the gift economy, right? Uh, Mostly uh, uh, used in tribal societies, clan-based societies, uh, through mutual obligation. You give something, it creates a debt on the other side, and then they want to give back more in order to restore the equality. So it's a kind of strange way to name it, but that's, I think, really what it's about. So equality matching. He also talks about authority ranking. So when you have class society, imperial systems, etc., cetera, um, you know, it's basically plunder and then redistribute, but according to a, uh, a hierarchical ranking of society, depending on your place in that society, whether you're a lord or a serf or a craftsman in the city, you, you, you should get a certain amount of access to, to goods Will, uh, that correlate to your power and status in that society. Market pricing, I don't need to explain that because that's where we live in today, uh, but there's also another one he calls communal shareholding. Now communal shareholding is basically what we do in the family,
0: yeah,
1: unless you have a neoliberal couple where you, you really you know do all your accounting separately, which happens, but in a lot of families you practice communal shareholding, right? So it's for the family. You're, you're not charging, hopefully, I think, your kids mm-hmm. uh, for what you do for them, right? You, you don't price or, and you don't expect anything directly in return. The the way it works is, it's a whole. It's a family seen as a totality, and we all do the best to make the family work. Um, which is basically the way it worked in the, in the you know first hundred thousands of years of human history. When small nomadic bands uh, were the norm, where you can't accumulate property because you, you're moving around, so you go on a hunt, you're not gonna sell your, your deer to your family, it's just distributed. Okay. Um, so, probably also here from what I'm saying, that there's kind of a, I, I wouldn't call it the historical progression because that's taboo now to, to use that, but. You know, you can see there, there is, in history, a relative changes in the dominance of one modality over another, right? So from the communal shareholding as the norm, that doesn't mean the other didn't exist, that's, that's a very important point. But communal shareholding as the norm in nomadic societies, to the gift economy as the norm in clan and tribal societies, to authority ranking in class pre-capitalist societies, class societies and market pricing in a capitalist society. Now some time ago I found a book which really reinforces uh, this frame. Um, it gave me multiple brain-gasms. Uh, it's, called the evolution, it's called The Structure of World History by Kojin Karatani. It was published in 2014. So he calls it a bit different. I don't know if you can see it because it's in a really small print. Uh, what, what he does is he, he kind of, you know, rereads major anthropological authors like Pierre Clastres, Marshall Salins, you know, all these people. Uh, um, he rereads uh, the, hist- the, the, the big historians and he comes with a very similar scheme, or just very briefly. Mode A, reciprocity of the gift. Mode B, Ruling and protection, mode C, commodity exchange, and mode D. So here is an interesting thing. He calls it a, a, a mode which transcends the other three, which integrates the other three. Like He makes a very important point about capitalism. Uh, he says the reason it's so strong is because it's not one mode of production. It's three in one. So it's capital, state, and nation, Right? So capital is the forces of the commodity exchange and commodity production. The nation is the, is the seed of reciprocity. In other words, the survival of the tribal mechanisms is in the nation. Like people have a sense of what is fair in a nation. And whenever capital becomes too strong and disturbs the, the balance in society, you have what Polanyi calls a double movement. So you have a reaction from the nation which forces the state to make rebalancing efforts. Um, in the same way and this is what I will t- you know I will talk about mode D, uh, we will see that mode D, as it emerges, is also an integrative mode. So I'll try to explain what I mean with that. But I think one important thing you have to remember until now is, we're talking about a multimodal world, right? We're talking about a world in which all these things exist at the same time, represented by different forces, different institutions, but they exist under a kind of attractor system, like a dominant mode. So for example, today, uh, well, if you were a Catholic before the Reformation, you know, there was a, a feudal kind of model, right? The religion was molded by feudalism. If you were a, a reformed Christian, it had a lot of different already kind of pre-capitalist democratic aspects to it, right, in the way it was run and, and seen. N- nowadays, or maybe nowadays, n- not anymore, but maybe when I was young, you know, it was new age. So you pay for it, right? You want you want an enlightenment, you take an instant alignment course, and it was commodified, right? You, you pay for workshops, right? So you can see how Something that exists through history changes its form because it's kind of dominated by this one attractor, which changes over time. And now, if you if you do online dating, it's like work. There's an article. What, what was it? I, I haven't read it yet, but it's it's it looks at dating as work. Uh, you know, you, you have to pay for a dating site and and all that stuff, right? So so I hope you know what I'm what I'm trying to say here. But it's also very important in terms of when we think in, in terms of social change. Um, think about Marxism as kind of a paradigma, paradag, paradigmatic way of thinking about change, you know, in industrial society. It was very much uh, a sense of, okay, capitalism creates this counterforce, the workers, which will, will, will take power and then will change it, right? So the idea whether you were a reformist or revolutionary was always we will change the system and then the other system will be installed. But if you look at transitions and you know we have a transition from mode A1 communal shareholding nomadic tribes to clan-based society, that's the first transition. We have a transition from clan-based tribal society to Class-based societies. We have a transition from class-based pre-capitalist societies to capitalist society. So there's, uh, we, we, there's, it's not like there hasn't been a transition before. We can we can look at transitions, right? And to be honest, it kind of never ever conform conform to the Marxist uh, vision. It's just not the way it happened. The reason capitalism won w- was because they are capitalists. Capitalists existed. Within the feudal society, and strengthen themselves, and eventually became the dominant force. Uh, so here, so what am I trying to do? What is the P2P Foundation? What is P2P theory? What is this all about? Well, it's following Jochai Benkler's uh, uh, ideas about peer production. Is we are at the in a period of history where we see a new modality which was marginal moving to the center of value creation. In other words, and through that mechanism we now have commoners. Commoners exist. They're not, some, they're not people who have to take power and then change everything. They're people who today exist, try to reinforce themselves, Try to do things to exist better and expand. Um, so that what we do in the P two P foundation is focus on this particular transition from a system that is dominated by market forms, in a particular particular for, way of market forms, capitalism, to a new complex society where the the attractor becomes the commons rather than the market. In other words, that new system that is emerging is starting to, to, is starting to, to, to develop mechanisms to subsume the market and the state to its own interests and to its own values. Now, it's emergent, yes, but it's also exponential. And maybe you think I'm dreaming. Uh, I'll just one study is a study by Tina de Moore. She's a Belgian commons historian. She is produced some fascinating books. I'm not sure they're translated. But, for example, I always assumed that the commons were always there. No. They, they emerged in the 12th century in 70 years' time. The crafts, the guilds, you know, were they always there? No. They emerged in a very small period in about 70 years' time. You, you go from a situation where there's almost none to a situation where they become the dominant form. This was like 11th, 12th century. There's a fantastic book about it, The First European Revolution, by Richard Moore. I don't know if you've read it. It's really interesting because it goes into detail into one of those transitions from a plunder economy that existed after the fall of the Roman Empire to a feudal economy based on land, right, where the value comes from, the land and the serfs. Uh, okay so I lost my thread uh, let me let me go back to yes, okay so if you wanted to know in the 10th century or in the 15th century another transition time how society would look like after a certain time of this thing going on well, what you could do and this is what we're doing in the P2P Foundation is to systematically look at the seed forms okay, now I remember what I wanted to say Tina de Moore has 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 done a calculation of state, corporate, and civic initiatives, right? From 1980 to 2005, it's linear growth. From 2005, it's exponential. So the amount of people today doing things in a different way, trying to feed themselves differently, trying to do energy provision differently, uh, trying to do housing differently, if you start mapping it, and I've seen maps in Amsterdam, I've seen maps in Berlin, I've seen maps in Paris. You do not see the map. Right? There's so many people involved in change today that you do not see the map. You see only the red arrows of Google. It's, it's there. Okay. So what, what do you do if you're interested in change? Well, you look at those seed forms. What are these people doing? Right. For example, in the 15th century, oh, why is purgatory suddenly so popular? Right? Well, because you couldn't lend money as a Christian, you went straight to hell before, then suddenly you can go to purgatory and, and buy an indulgence and, and the, the church can build its uh, cathedrals, right? So it's an ideological change. Then the Franciscans and the Templars invite double-entry book, uh, double book accounting, or maybe reinvented. I'm not sure, but anyway. So you have all these changes that are patterns, that are emerging at that time, which probably people at the time think, oh my God, everything is changing, but not knowing exactly in what direction. But two, three centuries later, you would say, I think with justification that these were the seed forms that would come together as capitalism. So this is a bit what I'm trying to do, right? So if you look at the seed forms, like what you see today is the following. We have a mode of value creation, which is based on contributions not on labor and capital so the old system which you're all familiar with right uh, entrepreneurs and capitalists fund projects, hire labor um, accumulate capital, make profits, etc, etc Right? because in the market transaction we only look at our mutual benefits we have an external body, the state which tries to regulate the negative externalities that we produce through market exchange. It's not working as well as it used to, but that was the idea. And then civil society, when we talk about it, we talk about non-profits and non-governmental, meaning it's derivative. There's no value being created in civil society. It's what people do with the surplus they get from from the market. Like? The, mo- the money has to come from the market and then we can do maybe a few other things. Okay, So this is the way we see value creation uh, under capitalism. If you look at value creation in peer production, it's contributors contributing to a commons. It's software developers contributing to Linux, it's open designers contributing to Arduino, it's people uh, producing to tens of thousands of commons that today exist based on contributions. And also interesting, if you look at how how that happens, it is not the allocation of resources, and that's you explain in the first half of your book, if I remember correctly, doesn't happen neither with market pricing nor through hierarchical decision making. It happens through massive mutual coordination. I don't know if you use a language, but we use a language of stigmergy, right? the language of the ants, the social insects, where you know what to do because you receive signals from your peers go left, go right, go straight. Uh, So we have built these massive open contributory systems which allow for contributory based value creation. If you have a system that is based on contributions so there is no labor dependency, for a huge amount of people within these circuits. You, you have to change where you organize labor. Uh, because if I can tell you what to do, you have to find other ways. So we are inventing all kinds of participatory processes in order to manage these production processes. Finally, the third aspect is we are creating commons, right? So these contributions do not create commodities, they create shared resources that everybody can use. Now, this is, for me, very interesting, right? In, in the heart of the, the commodity exchange system, we are creating a cybernetic communal shareholding-based system that is at the core of value creation. The argument that I'm making is that this is so productive, productive, compared to pure commodity exchange, that we see a massive transfer of capital towards these new modalities, right? This is what I call an anarchical capitalism. And this is, and I know people on the left generally don't agree with me, what I say, this is very necessary. It's a transvestment of value from one mode of production to another. The question, though, is is the following. Is capital subsuming these new modalities? Of course, the answer is yes, absolutely, they're doing it. They are subsuming the commons and pre-production, to capital accumulation but just as interesting is the other question is how can it happen in another way right how can we have transvestment how can we subsume capital to the needs of peer production communities now this brings me to the second institution that is growing so the first one is called productive communities that consist of contributions and contributors commoners peer producers the second aspect is that people who are in this sphere, and I can assure you, they are more happy than people who are not on that sphere, right? And so, so, I think the studies show, if I if I'm correct, that you know, in an average corporation, one out of the five one out of five people would continue to do what they do without being paid, and maybe that's optimistic, right? <laughs> Um, But if you look at Wikipedia, you know, with all its warts and all, I I do a lot of Wikipedia critique in my free time, Uh, but 100% or maybe 90%, you know, a few people are probably paid by PR companies and and intelligence agencies and stuff, but 99% of the people who are in the Wikipedia are there because they want to be there, right? So they are, this is a, something you can look at if you have time. It's a Japanese thing called Ikigai. You know, this is like where you want to be in your life, right? It, in the middle of all of that. Your passion, your mission, your vacation, your profession, right? When you do peer production, you are there. Well, no, you're not there. You have passion. You may have skills. But how do you make money? Right? How do you survive? How do you produce yourself in the sphere of peer production? And that is where, um, so here's the situation today, right? Uh, so collectively it reproduces itself. Wikipedia, Linux, Arduino, Wikihouse, Wikispeed, they all exist, they continue to exist on a collective level, we know how to do this. There is self-production, self-reproduction of the commons. But to self-reproduce the commoners, we have an issue, right? So. The issue is that today it's it's these netarchical, extractive, commodity exchange institutions that extract the value from our human cooperation. This is a big shift, right? Capitalism used to be enclosing the commons, destroying the commons. And the Soviet system was even worse in doing that, actually, even more destroying the commons. The the new, new, and, and you pay labor, right? If you look today, Airbnb, Uber, they don't have labor, right? They don't pay people to build houses into hotels that they then rent to you. What they are doing is they are allowing us to do peer-to-peer comments, as the case of IBM with Linux, or peer-to-peer exchanges, as in the case of Uber and Airbnb, and they extract value from our production. right? This is already a recognition by the system that this is a real thing, and they are extracting a value from it. The problem of course is that they are not reinvesting in that human cooperation, right? And that gives you precarity. So this is something we could call the value crisis. And to explain it in a short way, we are now in a system which has the cap- capacity to exponentially increase our capacity to create use value directly and to exchange it with our peers, share or exchange with our peers. Our capacity to monetize the human co- cooperation only increases linearly, and is extracted by private monopolies who are not reinvesting in the self-reproduction of the system. And this gives us massive, uh, uh, massive precarity. In that sense, unfortunately, peer production actually creates some kind of hyper-neoliberalism. You don't even have to pay people anymore, right? Um, But it doesn't have to be that way. Uh, And so again, so what are people doing? Well, people are doing today is they're creating ethical economic entities that are generative vis-a-vis the commons. Now, If you want to read a good book about this, it's Marjorie Kelly, The Emerging Ownership Revolution, where she describes many many examples in the United States, actually most of them are pre-digital, but it's still very interesting that shows many examples of how you can do that creating generative ethical entrepreneurial coalitions around commons production. So one I like very much is called enspiral it was born in Occupy uh, Wellington in New Zealand about, well oh, that's a pretty short time, 2011 um, and here's how it works, just to give you an idea how these people, you know, function. So at the core of n there are two commonses. Maybe more, but the two ones I know. One is called Lumio. Lumio is an open-source decision-making system for virtual communities. Yeah. Um, co-budgeting is an open-source uh, software for in reinvesting the surplus from a network. So in Lumio they make their decisions and P2P foundation, we use Lumio as well, so if you have a virtual organization with many people in different places of the world, because this is something I want to add, following mode D as an integrative mode, mode D is a reinvention at a higher level of complexity of nomadic, nomadic condition, right? You can contribute to whatever project you like or not. And you can retract your contribution. Well, no, I mean, what you've done is done, but you can stop contributing, right? (coughs) So you have these people, for example, I live in Chiang Mai, Northern Thailand, um, and there's thousands of neo-nomadic developers living in Chiang Mai. Uh, 30 people from the Mozilla Foundation work and live in Chiang Mai, right? You have this whole circuit being developed now of young people developers, designers that are just traveling around doing projects, they have effectively a neo-nomadic condition. And in that sense, this is a technology which enables a renomadization of, of our world. Second, I, I'm continuing on my integrative uh, logic here. Second, the clan-based, tribal-based, reciprocity, equality matching. That's what I'm talking about. When I say generative, right, when I say a generative ethical entrepreneurial coalition, so the 18 social business ventures that exist in the spiral coalition around Lumio and co-budgeting commons. This is, this is about reciprocity. This is about how can I use the commons and build a livelihood around the commons Without weakening and extracting value from the commons, because we are all co-dependent from the commons, right? So even though these are market entities, they are actually market entities that that subsume themselves to the value of reciprocity. Does that make sense? Right. So it's like the, the idea of a moral economy of the Middle Age in the Middle Ages, right? So this is this is a reintegration of mode A two reciprocity into a higher level mode D mode of production. So how can you do this? Just a, a few examples. Uh, this is something that we have very hef- uh, hefty discussions with the free culture and free uh, software movement. In the P2P Foundation, we support something called reciprocity-based licensing. Okay. If you do software, it's no problem, right? You live in Italy. You stay until you're 42 with your parents. No problem. You can do software, right? But if you want to make stuff, if you want to move from Linux to WikiHouse or Wikispeed, make cars and houses, you need to buy raw material, you need to rent space, you need to... so there's, you know, there's capital requirements and regen, regeneration requirements which come in the, in, into the game. Then it becomes problematic that big companies who do not contribute to your commons just take the common knowledge and build an economy around it and drive you you out of business. This becomes problematic. Uh, A famous example, MakerBot 1 and MakerBot 2. MakerBot 1 was a commons. A whole community in the world had contributed to making a self-generating 3D printer. Then they got venture capital, and of course the first thing the venture capital demands is enclose. So MakerBot 2 is no longer a commons. so what is the reciprocity-based license? It's very easy to explain. I use uh, an example from the UK. It's called the Fair Shares Association. It's a new form of property which combines one-fourth founders, one-fourth funders, one-fourth workers, and one-fourth users. So they have four types of shares. And they're expanding this model in different uh, companies in the solidarity economy. They have a double licensing scheme that says everybody can use our knowledge so the sharing is not in danger it's full share fully open source but if you wanna make money with it then you have to be a member of our association reciprocity and then you get the Creative Commons commercial license instead of the Creative Commons non commercial license this is what we mean and I hope you understand so the idea is to reintroduce in the market the demand of reciprocity so, and that's what we mean with an ethical market coalition. So, if you want to study this, Enspiral, Las Indias, uh, Sensorica, uh, Ethos in the UK are among amongst the larger of these. They're still very small. You know, we talk about two, three hundred people, uh, but these are models of this new regime. Now, third thing I didn't mention, and I should absolutely mention is the idea of a for-benefit association that manages the infrastructure of cooperation so it looks like an NGO but it's not an NGO Uh, it's legally it's an NGO but that's they have they have a different way of thinking about stuff so an NGO still thinks in terms of scarcity we have a problem in the world healthcare in war zones so we'll collect we fundraise, and then we'll direct the resources to the war cells. you know, Doctors Without Borders, right? As opposed to the Wikimedia Foundation, which says, we want to create this universal resource, universally available for everybody who seeks knowledge, the Wikipedia, in all its languages, etc., we need money for the servers so we're going to fundraise to create this infrastructure that allows people to continue to do what they want to do so in a way it's kind of it's an abundance way of thinking right it's it's a way of thinking that all these contributions are there potentially in the world so let's make a system a social signaling system that allows people to match their efforts and skills to that project So in Wikipedia there's no business around it, but what I'm interested in is these models which actually do that, so the Inspire, Sensoricas, etc. So reciprocity licensing is one example. I want to give you Mm -hmm. another one, which is uh, just to show you that I'm not dreaming all these things up. uh, Here is our section on accounting, now every value shift in history which, whether it's the invention of the state in Mesopotamia, the temple irrigation systems, was based on accounting, right? The invention of accounting created the state. Well, not really, but it was. it's correlated, right? It's correlated. The invention of capitalism is correlated with the invention of new forms of accounting in the 15th century that were used by merchants, etc. The... Peer production value shift is correlated to the invention of new forms of contributory accounting. So, just to give you an idea, um, yeah, it's a Mac, so I don't find the, the scrolling thing. Uh, how do you go down, man? Are you here? <laughs> Sorry, I, oh, there it is. It doesn't always show up. Uh, how many? How many do I have? 419, right? 419 forms of accounting changes but generally ideas open and contributory accounting right so here's the way we reason about this the real class struggle is not fighting for a piece of the pie within a system that predetermines for you what value is right this system that tells you that polluting a bay is good for GDP, but volunteering to clean up the beaches is bad for GDP, is bad for GDP right? So that's the, the deciding what value is, right? That's the real struggle, right? So this is what these communities are doing. Of course, they can't change the whole system, but if you look at the contrib- contributory accounting system of Sensorica, which is the most advanced and the most complex, what they're really saying is in our community, we will decide what is value. Right? So, contributor and counting allows people in that network to say, okay, I gave space, I gave a machine, I rented a machine, I worked 10 hours. So, they decide collectively what value is, what a contribution is. They evaluate it, they have a karmic system. It pretty much works like in Buddhism you know, you sin and then you get merits, and your credit card goes. Uh, back uh, in balance so they use this karmic uh, mechanism and the social contract is if we make money and of course that that doesn't depend on them that is the interface with the existing dominant system they can't change that you know they're too small but what they say is that the dominant value stream if they can access it will be subsumed to the contributory accounting karma that they have decided, right? So this is this is transvestment. This is the idea of transvestment. Generating a stream of value from uh, an, one system, the commodity-based system, mode C, to mode D, right? It's f- five minutes. How can I? OK. So maybe I'll give you the secret plan um, <laughs> The secret plan, right? Um, so this is this is how we strategize. So the, uh, so so we call ourselves post-capitalist rather than anti-capitalist, right? And the reason we do this is that so I see this like in a divorce, right? So you 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 uh, you have your wife and it doesn't work, and you keep fighting and fighting and fighting, and everybody unhappy. And then there is a moment where you feel it's not worth it. And that's when the relationship is really dead, right? As long as you keep fighting, you're nourishing that relationship, however dysfunctional it is. Once you feel or decide that it's done, you move on. Does that make any sense? So that's the difference between being anti-capitalist and being post-capitalist. Like, I'm not even interested anymore. I know it exists, I know it's evil, but I'm doing something else. I'm building the future. I'm constructing right now a life in which I feel happy with my peers in a different logical value. So that's that's the whole idea. So, you know, if you look at, okay, I, I'll, I'll have to, to, if you look at transitions in the past, um, it's hard to say whether transition happens, and it's probably for both reasons, right? There's, there's different schools of thought. It's because the old system is no longer working that's one thesis or because the new system is so much better than it's logically follows that people shift to the new. I'm not sure. But, you know, I would say it's creating more and more ecological havoc and more and more social inequality. It's not working. It has a number of systemic crises. People are responding in fragmented ways to these crises. So they're doing sustainability, you know, already 10 years ago, uh, what was it, David Corton or Paul Hawken, uh, Blessed Unrest, you know, already 2 million sustainability organizations. That was like 10, 15 years ago, right? Openness, free culture, open design, free software, you know, all these movements wants to, to share knowledge, mutualize productive knowledge. And then we have all the people who are interested in fairness, the solidarity economy, the cooperative economy. All these three things are happening at the same time, but they are fragmented. This is a big issue. So I went to Italy, spoke to the community-supported agricultural movement there. Oh, okay, they have 12 different softwares for ordering food in just one country. Right? No wonder that Uber and BMW win that kind of a game because they only have one software uh, to do so this is one thing. Within those big streams, people are still fragmented, but they also fragmented in between. So, open source circle economy is a set of uh, strategies and proposals to converge a sustainability model and the open model. Open cooperativism is a set of strategies and propositions to converge the solidarity models with the open models. Does that make sense? So, in that way, these different patterns which exist, but are not yet reinforcing each other, that's the idea, right? It's, it's to reinforce that modality. And as I said, it's integrative, and I'll, maybe I'll stop with that. It's integrative because it's, it, it allows a re- revival of neo-nomadic conditions. Now, the reason that I survive, not always very well, uh, outside of institutions, it's because you know we have pooling mechanisms in nomadic society and I, I profit from that. Whenever I'm really in a bad shape, I just tell people and I get fundraising. You know, not a lot, but five, six thousand euro, okay, I'm I'm good for another three months. You know? Yeah, it's not always fun, but it works. And then of course we try to actually work on institutionalizing those mechanisms, right? So we, we are working on this. For example, in N-Spiral, one of the things that moved me most is that they mutualize their mortgages. Yeah. So any anytime somebody wants a mortgage, they all pitch in so that the person has ten percent to go to the bank. Right. So it's it's based on these mutualizing uh, resources. Okay. It's integrating reciprocity mechanism. I talked about it. It integrates the market. The Ethical Entrepreneurial Coalitions are market forms, they're not capitalist market forms, they're not extractive capital accumulation based market forms. The state, the for-benefit association, is the state of peer production. It's the common good institution that looks at the whole, not just at individuals connecting to each other. And we project that, and that is my real end, we project that as as a social model for the future. So, we see a future system as a reconfiguration of the capital-state-nation hierarchy into another one, where civil society becomes productive because citizens are now engaged in contributing to creating shared resources, commons. We see an economy that's become ethical and moral because it has become generative towards nature and human communities. And we see a state who has become an enabler and a facilitator of social and personal autonomy. Just one example, the Bologna Regulation for the Care and Regeneration of the Urban Commons, it's a mouthful, I'm sorry, Uh, basically allows neighborhood collectives to propose improvements to their neighborhood. There's an evaluation and negotiation with the city about how the city can help these collectives achieving those goals with money, infrastructures, etc., this is a reversal of the idea of a state which stands outside as a provider of public services that are passively consumed by citizens into a system that creates the conditions, the capacitation, because this is very important, right? Peer production does not solve the inequalities in the existing system, right? As you know, free software is very male-dominated Now, there's a lot of reasons. One could be culture, but they are open systems. Another could be, well, in this society a lot of women are not studying technology and don't, you know, I don't know what the the situation is. But I'm saying, by itself, they're not solving that issue, right? So this is called capacitation building, right? Capacity building. So we need a partner state as an enabling mechanism to make sure that everybody can contribute in optimal ways. To building shared resources in their society. As opposed, this is my real conclusion, to a model that is very uh, common now in England, the big society, participation society in the Netherlands, which says basically, oh guys, you can't do it all yourself. Right? Let us save the banks and fund the military. But, you know, pensions, you don't really need them. Uh, you know, uh, what's called uh, for you know, young people who flee their homes and in, in women's shelters you don't need all that stuff right because you you can do you can self-organize now so th- this is a very dangerous kind of encapsulating of the same words and vocabulary but within a very different political program which is kind of a
0: right-wing communism you know so Okay, great. Thank you. Let me ask a first question and then sort of uh, uh, start to take uh, responses. Um, There's a version of this that uh, ducks conflict. Uh, This business of we can mostly accept, and and this really builds on the very, very last point you made. Hmm. Um, We're fed up with fighting We'll build our own. Here, let me show you the hundreds of instances where people are building their own in many directions. But every one of the transitions you've described historically is accompanied by massive bloodshed and conflict. Uh, Even within capitalism, the transition of the second industrial divide (sighs) and the rise of social democracy is fundamentally on the backs of people fighting and being killed and killing um, what's where are the battles? Uh, you don't I, I can't imagine. I refuse to imagine that you have a deterministic story here that says, if we just build it,
2: they will, will come, come. and yes.
0: all will be well. don't yes. worry, we'll just leave them behind. There are points of battle, there are points of control, there are places where uh, battles need to be won. If you were to diagnose where they are in the next 2, five, twenty years, where, where do you think of battles? Right. Well, first of all, I see three big
1: dangers, like things that I personally don't like. And, and these are kind of the abs- absolutisms of these forms. So we have fascism and sovietism, which were forms of totalizing the state form. We have neoliberalism and anarcho-capitalism, which are ways to totalize the commodity form. And but I also critique communism. Uh, and, and the way I use it is for the people who are only the horizontal. Uh, and that would include also a lot of people who think exactly like that. Like you know, we just do our stuff and um, so my view, of course, you know, we, we take conflict very seriously in the P2P Foundation. Um, the, the reason, but it's kind of, it's, uh, so if you, if you take a traditional leftist approach, you know, there, there is kind of a sense, I mean, in the radical left of, you know, we need power first. You know, it's all or nothing. So you're building organizations, but the organization itself do not prefigure the future you want. They're more like warriors' organizations, uh, in a way, right? Um, As opposed to a vision where you, you build your strength first, and then you engage in conflict, but you're careful about what conflicts you engage in because you want to win, right? Does that make any sense? So, and think about the early labor movement, I think that's how they did it, you know, had mutuals, they had social insurance, they had the unions, they had the Labour Party, and all these things were interconnected to create like a counter-hegemony, right? And somehow that got lost in, in kind of more, anti, you know, very verbally aggressive uh, strategies, but okay. So I think the the, the that's a different of, of emphasis is you you, emph, you emphasize the building of the alternative and defensive measures before engaging in battles that you can't win. Okay that's then of course you have to discuss what a battle is and can you win it or not. But I would look for a fusion right because I think you have people who who are activists who like to fight, who like conflict, who need to engage in conflict, who may not have alternatives, really. They're they're defensive. And then you have people building the alternatives, and I think the idea is to find convergences between these movements. For example, in Occupy, I thought that was wonderful, the Vermont bio farmers, right, fed the Occupy. People in Zuccotti Park. That for me is a really interesting convergence. You know, these people in Vermont are, you know, are growing organic food, are doing consumer-supported agriculture, but they were fully conscious that Occupy was an interesting, potentially interesting, uh, you know, conflictual event. So I'm optimistic. I will tell you why. Because you know the other side doesn't 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 allow you to rest like that. Think about file sharing, right? Severely repressed and it created the the pirate parties. The pirate party is going to win the election in Iceland. It's going to be the main party. You know, there were there were no more apolitical people than file-sharing people. You know, they just want to listen to music, right? But out of that cauldron came came the pirate parties. Another good example is in Comú, so in Barcelona. So you have 2011 15M, they're entirely anti-political. You cannot go on the square with uh, any sign of, uh, you know, belong to any organization. Then there is elections, and they don't vote. And they have the most right-wing, vicious, anti-commons government in the history of Spain. Well, Franco not included. (laughs) Post-Franco history of Spain, all right? and the result is that these people then repoliticized and now they're in power and komu is in coalition a commons oriented political coalition that's and actually they have a person it's i think it's my... I'm I'm not sure, yeah who is actually in charge of developing Working fellow uh, who is uh, in charge of developing these um, collaborative ec- economies at the city level yeah, so I think they go together, and it's a question of finding convergences between you know various em- emancipatory movements. Um, yeah. So let us bring in. Uh, yeah. Back.
3: My concern is you, you put a lot of emphasis on the modes of production, and actually modes of exchange. And modes of exchange, yeah. but, but but capitalism is extremely good at organizing and its structures. So this I think this is where the where the where the Gravitas is. And, and if you have a look at uh, Airbnb winning with couch surfing or Uber winning with uh, ride-sharing, or even Wikipedia. You know, I'm, I'm an engaged Wikipedia and I'm, I'm all for Wikipedia, but we're for the last 10 years we've lost a lot of new editors. We've seen a lot of parasitic organizations around it, including Yahoo. Google is has, having knowledge uh, whatever it's called, knowledge engine now, that is actually feeding our content without even attribution. So my question is maybe, you know, of course, it would be nice to say that we're having sort of like seeds of new modes, but maybe we, there was a war and we've lost.
1: Um, Yeah, it's a good point. And, you know, nobody can deny that it's it's partially true. Um, I just don't find it very interesting. (laughs) You know, I rather think, okay, this is the case, you know. Um, you know, I, I also can give counter exams, right? Like, like you look at cars and you see Wikispeed, and of course they're not building a lot of cars, but they're able to produce a new design of a car every week, right? Uh, so in terms of actually productivity and innovation, I think we're very good. Uh, in terms of, you know, permanent organization, I think capital still has a lot of, a lot of uh, headway. And... I blame horizontalism for it, right? So the the blob, I call it the blob, right? So you shift from the hierarchical mode to the horizontal mode. And then it's like permanent processing. Talking, talking, everybody has to agree, and nothing gets done. So I'm dreaming of a new mode that combines you know, fully democratic participation, but then actually responsible action. And... So yeah, I think when we get that right, then we can uh, move in that direction. I think another thing, and I'm not sure it's realistic, but that's the thing I'm working on. We have co-ops, they represent 10, 15% of the economy. We have solidarity economy, they work. But then you look at Mondragon and they privatize their knowledge, right? So the idea of an open cooperative is an idea of convincing those forces that are now existing as a subform within capitalism to become hyper productive through these open strategies right and they know how to organize already so yeah it's I don't know if you read the book uh, what's it called from a Belgian guy Frédéric Laloux, reinventing organizations right capitalism right now it is extremely communistic right I mean the the way they they deal with labor the self-management within for profit enterprise, it's amazing what they're able to do. Um, and then you go to a leftist organization and it's like the army. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we need to, we, we, there's all the things we need to change. But I, I just fundamentally, of course, um, this is not, this is just a joke and it's not meant for you. But here is, I, I like to say this we have three ruling classes neoliberal businessmen. Social democratic politicians and postmodern academics, and they're in charge of demoralizing us. So, anyway, <laughs> I have one, two,
0: um,
2: So, I guess at the end of your talk, you said peer production does not solve existing inequalities, and I, um, I was uh, listening on its own,
1: right? On its own,
2: right? Yeah. On its own. Um, and I guess I wanted to ask if you could sort of go a little bit deeper on that. I was I was listening to your talk thinking about, I was recently spent a period of time in Cuba with a number of open source developers there and got to know that community in a, a little bit. And it is a really interesting context for that kind of work because of the unique way that the state operates there. Um, but what I was sort of not surprised to find but interested to think about was the fact that the open source community there like in so many other places is extremely dominated by men and like like one of the biggest email lists there has 420 people on it and two of them are women yeah um and it also is dominated by people who are in something like a middle class so young men who yep live with their families where women are doing most of the labor of maintaining a home and in and in Cuba that's that's a big chunk because you don't yeah. there isn't actually you know people aren't working in the same way that that we do here. So I guess I wanted you to just reflect a little bit on that and on i mean in the in the open source context there, every woman that I talked to about it said, like well, it's a it's a club and it's incredibly machista society, you know yeah. like, I couldn't. I was going into all these conversations and was as in every as in so many different contexts of technology or anything else in Latin America, you also you have to deal with the fact that everybody like wants to take you out after, mm-hmm. you know? And so I'm just, I'm curious, I want to just sort of push and, yeah. and see like, well, I think are you worried so- about that? Or you sort of accept sure, this sure, yeah. post-capitalist scenario also will be dominated by men and that's. Uh, <laughs>
1: yeah, well, I mean, it's a difficult issue, and I, you know, I don't have all the answers. Um, certainly, in free software, this is very, very much the case. I think as you move to design communities, you'll see a lot more women. Uh, for example, you know, co-working uh, very much under the leadership of women. Um, almost all the one I've been to, where uh, you know, had uh, female leadership. Um, you know lots of the even fab labs you you see a lot of women in fab labs so it's you know it's not I'm just saying it's not black and white right and and yeah I you know it's so I unfortunately I think it's the women who have to do that work you know and push push for the change within those communities and you see that within free software right you have these and you may not like the names they choose for themselves, but, you know, they're net girls and net chicks and, and cyber girls with four R's. And so most of these communities have actually, because of that problem, you know, women are, are organizing themselves uh, with reason, you know, to change that machistic culture. Um, there is an, also the, the class issue, absolutely. Um, you know, one of the things I like was uh, going to Oakland. Well, actually, haven't well actually wasn't in there but i talked with people from the what's it called the omni commons where you know by 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 being more ambitious in terms of size of these fabrication spaces they can do more for inclusionary politics as opposed to a small space that you know you have geeks and that's it um, so yeah i don't have you know particularly answers to that uh, and I don't think peer production as such is enough to to make all these changes. It's going to be a convergence of struggles and constructions that you know is going to make a, a more full change.
0: If I can yeah. just add to that before moving to your question, um, I was just at WeShare last uh, week, and it's a completely. I I know the picture you're talking about. Um, um, obviously, I come, I have a different place in it when I encounter it, but I know completely different. That, I don't know whether it were more women than men, but certainly you couldn't tell the difference. It's got its own internal tensions between people who are completely within this framework and people who are not. But it's a. it seems more domain, uh, in terms of practice domain, uh, determined than peer determined, uh, which is to say, because it starts out in a highly technologically mediated form, uh, on the background of technology being coded male uh, in late 20th century society, I suspect you're looking at a generational and domain uh, 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 effect. And that once you move to other places, um, you know, if you look at the National Domestic Workers Alliance, ILAP, and the effort to create a, a, um, um, a platform for domestic workers, you actually have obviously the opposite because of the background social structure of domestic work being coded as female. And so my suspicion is that what you're seeing is uh, periodically, uh, um, you're looking at a social organizational phenomenon that is rooted in technological practice at the time that technological practice is coded male, being generalized into domains that may not be. That's at least the optimistic. So fan culture was another domain in which you had, in the free culture movement, parallelism that wasn't anywhere near as 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 male, uh, uh, dominated and actually had domains that were quite heavily uh, uh, female. So I, that's my guess in, in in the quasi-optimistic version. of
1: it. Yeah, here's another optimistic thing. Uh, so we, uh, we have this program to interview women leaders in the peer-to-peer sphere. If you... Any suggestions welcome. We have, you know, three, four hundred now in the pipeline. We've done about fifteen to twenty interviews already, so we do like one every month. It's a lot of work. <laughs> Uh, but so, you know, we're trying to work on this, right? We, we're trying to to show that, you know, there's this other side. And next year, our priorities do the Global South, so that we haven't started yet. So, you know, it's kind of like seeing, you know, what are the imbalances within the movement and what can we do as an intervention to, you know, to at least do
4: something. Um, Go ahead. There also, yeah. Um, so, a few months ago, uh, my friend Darius here told us that Wikipedia was struggling with, dec- with a declining rate of editors, mostly because uh, new people who came into the platform didn't feel welcome because the modes of um, moderation of the platform were so deeply entrenched and not communicated yeah. well to the new uh, arrivers. So, my question to you is more general uh, What's the sustainability and uh, resilience of a system that relies on multiple organisms that each one? has its own definition of value
1: um, well I you know I, I know this is
4: controversial but from
1: the Wikipedia you actually look at the statistics and it's very clear the stagnation of contribution starts after the introduction of deletionism it's at that point where the the growth curve just stops and there is a, a Chinese researcher has you know he has all the stats showing it so what, what, So this is a critique of Wikipedia, right? So when they decided that instead of having an abundant encyclopedia to look at uh, what is it called Notori- notoriety or whatever the notion is that they use, right? Then you introduce a class of editors. And the thing is that in free software, the, the maintainers know more than the developers. But in Wikipedia the editors know less than the contributors, but they know the rules. And so as a contributor, as an unexperienced contributor to the Wikipedia, you know, within a day or two, and you know, I've tried a few times, you have fifteen codes fl- lapped on your, your and if you're not if you're not full time willing to engage and have a support, because you have vicious people in there that want to delete your, your page, you lose. And in in that way, I feel the open source ethos, which is you know continuing to improve an article, has been severely damaged in the way the Wikipedia works today. But I think it's so entrenched, it's not going to change anymore. And so Wikipedia will become you know probably more professionalized, start paying people. Um, I know this is not very popular view within the Wikipedia, but it's mine. <laughs> I, I, I
3: support yeah. paid editing as long as it's you know open. We yeah. know who mm. is being paid. Like people, people, yeah. people at museums scanning stuff for us, that's great. Mm-hmm. But deletion is just a short comment. I I don't think it's a, it's a valid link. I think deletion has spread through many projects at different times, and we see a decline across projects mm-hmm. in pretty, pretty much the mm-hmm. same time.
4: Okay. But the, that, bro- the broader question maybe yeah. you haven't addressed how, how do you ensure portability between the different systems that develop their own norms when it comes to value how do you make a system that's sustainable
1: uh, well I'm not sure what you mean by sustainable um, like if I
4: yeah. work on Wikipedia like, and I know all the rules of Wikipedia if I start with another system if I, okay, yeah. I don't like Wikipedia anymore then I start from scratch how do you Well, you know, that happens all the time in free Mm -hmm.
1: software, and and so that's one of the reasons I stress the the economic uh, structure, because, you know, if if you only rely on volunteering, um, people volunteer three to five years, and then, you know, they go on. Um, So if you want a system to persist over time, for me, you have to create livelihoods. And so, and then you have, and once you're in a livelihood situation, you have a very different logic. So I even notice it in my own organization. So, you know, the wiki, 20,000 articles, 35 million viewers, it works. But as soon as I have a contract with somebody to produce a report or a synthesis, it doesn't work because I need to be on time and people are not on time. And so I actually have to reintroduce hierarchy <laughs> in the production process when i'm when i'm with the market does that make any sense
4: mm-hmm.
1: so every modality is not going to work for every situation it works good for constant iterative improvement but where you're you know when you're interconnecting with uh, like a market organization and you have a contract it's it's not working you know because you have no guarantee that thing will be done at those conditions within a time period you know, this condition of you getting the income. Does that make any sense, right? We have a last question. Yeah. Okay. And, and there was one already for a long um, time there. We have. Yeah. Uh, oh. yeah. Okay, yeah.
2: Hi, um, so I wanted to ask you, this is all based on a physical infrastructure, enormous physical infrastructure, you know, satellites zooming yeah. overhead. And you know, it's almost like you're taking that for granted that all that's there and you're building on top of this. Um, is, is that a sort of accurate way of, of looking at what you're doing?
1: Well, actually I'm even worse than you think. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I think the only way to get to a sustainable society is through peer production. So I, I'll give you my argument. Okay. First of all, if you design for a market organization, you always design for scarcity, and planned obsolescence is not a bug, it's a feature. So everything we make today is made to fail, is made for waste, is made to force us to buy again. But when you look at open source communities, Wikispeed, WikiHouse, WikiHouse makes houses that are carbon positive. So not only do they not produce carbon, they actually take carbon out of the environment. Um, Then the second thing is, so we have projects. One is called um, the Thermodynamic Efficiencies of Peer Productions. We are actually calculating... That by if we take all, and we can we need help for that, you know if you have researchers because it's a very complex thing. So if you take if you if you mutualize your your knowledge, you mutualize your infrastructure, uh, you create a participatory ecosystem as a supply chain, right? Then everybody knows what everybody else is producing. Everybody knows knows the surplus of everybody else. You, I claim, that we can have um uh, 2080 okay so what I mean is the following if we move radically to this new system we, we can have we can have eighty percent less matter and energy to produce eighty percent of what we have now so I'm even saying the opposite so I'm saying not only you know we actually need this infrastructure its it's through the knowledge sharing that, that we actually can save our world from destruction you know we need to share all innovations we need we need open supply chains we need open book accounting and so it's like roads you know if you want commerce you need roads if you have no roads there's no commerce so you have, we have to make choices and for me this infrastructure is really vital for a shift to a sustainable society but, you know it doesn't mean it has to be the same like it's today because there's a normal wastage you know, for example, when you have ISPs, right, as a commercial entity, they create scarcity in bandwidth. It's, it's not objective, it's something that they need to sell your subscriptions. So they maintain these scarcities because of their business interests. You could have an internet that is, you know, like Wi-Fi net in Catalonia, which has no ISPs, where actually everybody who, who adds a, a device on his house increases, you know, the bandwidth for everyone.
0: So, yeah. We could continue this for much longer, and I would lean into net for example, just as a first next step, but we've reached the end. Thank you, Thank very, you. very, very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you Reed. so much. For-